Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast on The Bourne Legacy, the new, I guess you'd call it a reboot of The Bourne franchise. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, directed by Tony Gilroy and starring Jeremy Renner. And here to talk about it with me is John Swansburg. Hey, John. Hey, Dana. You are Slate's culture editor. Yes. I'll say that again because I flubbed it. You are Slate's culture editor. I am. And uh, we saw The Bourne Legacy together last night. We were both super excited to see it. Yeah, this is. I think The Bourne franchise has been my favorite summer movie franchise from the last five or six years or however many years it's been running. The movies tend to come out in August, and they're always sort of... Um, I don't know. They're just like smart, fast-paced, interesting thrillers. They're, you know, they're a nice, I think, uh, alternative if you don't love a comic book um, tentpole type movie, but you do love a summer action popcorn movie. The Bourne movies have always kind of delivered for me. So I was, I was very pumped for this. Right. And they also have that slight philosophical angle because of the amnesia thing right. and the kind of moral quandary of Jason Bourne. So they've got a little bit more going on than just kablamo to the bad guys. Exactly. Um, so, but what is, let's do a quick reaction to this one before we start wading through the incredibly convoluted <laughs> plot. So uh, you were a little bit disappointed. I was disappointed. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed it for I, I was enjoying it for the first probably two thirds, um, but I think the last third left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, I think it did for both of us. There was a, as we will discuss probably later, there was a really long chase scene that kind of got boring. Um, uh, and, and there were a lot of possibilities that just weren't fully explored. Right, and I I, I, I should say though, I, I thought you know it was difficult f- um, for Jeremy Renner to have to step in um, to this franchise. He's playing a different character than Matt Damon played, but it's really been Matt Damon's franchise for three movies, and I thought he did a very good job. I, 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 I like him in general. And Well, the casting of him was part of why we were psyched about it, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, you and I are both pretty big Renner fans. Yeah, I love Renner, and I thought Renner did a good job, and in some ways, they kind of used the, the standard Bourne formula to good effect, but then the movie kind of got away uh, from itself at the end uh, with that long motorbike chase in Manila <laughs> that we'll discuss, I guess. Right, which really could have come from a James Bond movie or from any kind of adventure movie yeah yeah so there's some there's some real tweaks and adjustments to the uh, the logic of the the born universe the ludlum the once robert ludlum generated universe which has now gone off you know i think somewhere completely different from wherever ludlum had it yeah but when we joined this movie we were actually trying to figure this out the temporality of this movie right because there's a lot of flashbacks and there's a a lot of some interweaving with with previous stories but it seems like we begin the movie either seconds before or seconds after the last movie ended right yeah i can i still am not sure exactly where we started i think that we this movie may start before the third born movie ended because we see at one point uh, a journalist who worked for the guardian who was sort of about to blow the lid off of the Jason Bourne project, which I believe was called Treadstone, although there's also Black Briar. There are lots of different projects, secret projects. Um, and I, that happened in the previous movie. And that was sort of the big set piece, right? That was that was the, the big um, action sequence, I think, that I, the one that I remember anyway of right, the last movie. Right, where the baddies are trying to take out this journalist as he's walking through Waterloo Station uh, in England. And we see that happen in what doesn't feel like a flashback. It seems like we're catching a glimpse of something that's happening contemporaneously with the action of the Bourne legacy. So that that suggested to me that this movie that we watched last night at least starts before the ending of the last Bourne movie, if that makes sense. But I'm I'm not, I wouldn't swear on that. I'm I'm really not sure. Well, this is definitely true. The last we see of Jason Bourne, Matt Damon's character at the end of the Bourne ultimatum, is that what the last one was called? Is, is that he's plunging from this great height into a body of water, right? And, and it's assumed that he's going to drown. But we of course know in this movie that he has somehow escaped, although we never see Matt Damon in the movie. And the very, 
very first shot in this movie is of a man's body floating in a body of water, right? Kind right. of kind of sinking down very fast, as if he did just jump from a great height. So we're assuming it's Jason Bourne. But then the person that we see get out of the water, but apparently a different body of water in a different place, is Jeremy Renner's. Right. And he and he turns out to be um a, a you know a secret agent of the type that that Bourne was, where he's been both physically and mentally enhanced. So he's kind of like this ultimate killing machine who works on behalf of the United States, uh, doing various kind of dark missions across the globe. Like we, there's a there's a team of these different agents who are you know we see versions of them and there's one in Pakistan, there's one in North Korea. At one point, there's a general talking about how all these souped up humans are like doing amazing intelligence work all over the globe, and he's very upset because one of the plot sort of engines of this movie is that the because I think because of Jason Bourne the people who started Treadstone Blackbriar whatever the dark ops operation is that created these super soldiers are they're worried that the door is about to get blown off of their operation that is kind of, that the secret um, super soldier program is going to get outed so they want to shut it down they're basically trying to kill all of the super agents so that the press and the people of America won't find out about the program is that do I have that right? You think right? Yeah. So so early on the gambit is that there's these meds. This is also a completely new thing. The chems, as they call right. it, right? It took me a while to figure out like what is this word they're saying over and over because it hasn't figured before in the story at all. In fact, it was basically brainwashing, right? It was supposed to be sort of mental black ops that broke down Jason Bourne and reinvented his identity, right? But with this Jeremy Renner character, whose name, at least his name when the movie begins, is Aaron Cross. That he's actually made super and, and augmented by these these meds that he takes every day. Right, which is so that suggested to me that he's a different breed of super soldier than Bourne was. That I, I, my understanding is from the jibber jabber, you know, among the the bad guys who wear suits in this movie is that there were multiple programs that created multiple kinds of super soldiers under the guises of you know different um, secret programs, Treadstone, Blackbriar, all these other ones, and some of them were like Jason Bourne, who I guess were like trained mentally or broken down mentally. And, uh, in that fashion, and there's the Renner type where they had they were injected with some kind of virus that made their mitochondria stronger, blah blah blah, and that made them both physically and mentally stronger. But their mental and physical super strength was had to be maintained by taking these blue and green pills. If they went off them for 24 hours, they went back to being Joe Schmo. Right, and that's and that's a big tension at the beginning of the movie because Jeremy Renner's isolated in this Alaskan mountain landscape. Right, right. He's he's all he has is a pack with a gun in it to survive and he's running out of meds and so we don't quite know what's going to happen if he runs out of these meds and I think that tension could have been a lot better exploited because basically he's this physically and mentally augmented Superman who can do these incredible things and we see these shots of him scaling these mountains with no gear right and uh and th- there's not really a moment when those things start to, de- to deplete. You know, right. I was sort of looking forward to this moment where he started to get weaker and dumber and was panicking about it. <laughs> right. And that would actually be a great, right, to sort of have to deal with that. Like, I have to get out of this situation even though I am no longer the super guy. Right. And, and that never really did take place. Yeah, that, I mean, it, it's, the setup was for a very interesting and slightly different kind of um, tension than the Bourne movies presented. Um, in part because the Bourne movies were always sort of motivated in large part by Jason Bourne's attempt to figure out how he became the way he became. And that obviously was not where they were starting the starting point for this movie. But I like the idea that, oh, here's this guy who really without his medication is not so special. And like you said, it would have been very interesting and maybe even a little bit funny if they planned it right to have shown um, Aaron uh, at some point, you know, off his meds, trying to MacGyver his way out of a situation and, and realizing, oh, God, like I don't have super intelligence anymore. I can't think of how to put this pin in this fire extinguisher and, you know, use it to kill a guy with a submachine gun. But, was- but figuring it out anyway, you know, right. with, using just a plain old like, you know, normal brain. 
But I mean, especially because we're told later on in the movie that before he became Aaron Cross, right, the same character was named Kenneth Kitson and was a, I don't know if he's supposed to be Marine or an Army guy, right? But he's supposed to be somebody who was deployed in Iraq and who's then recruited for this program. And part of what wins him over to the program is it's going to add 12 points to his IQ. No, see, I think that, I I think... I understood that differently. I think that what he said when he's describing that situation is that he was so dumb before he joined the the military that the recruiter who was trying to sign him up lied on his application and increased his IQ by 12 points so that he could even get into the army. Right. So I think that's part of the tension is that he knows when he's like running out of meds, he knows that the fall for him is from super smart to like too dumb to enlist in the army. Like he knows he he's cognizant of the fact that he's a really dumb guy when he's not uh, a super soldier. Right. That, okay, you're right. You're right. And I did get that at the time. But thanks for reconstructing it for me because that makes me feel even more like an opportunity was lost, right? Because right. there could both be comic and tragic potential, right? And yeah. this, like you say, flowers for Algernon, right? Yeah. This guy kind of losing his mental capacity and then getting on the run with the woman who can help him shore it up again. So we have to get to Rachel Weiss and what she does in the movie. So after he finally makes his way from the Alaskan highlands, right? Right. We don't know exactly how. He goes through Chicago or something and then he gets back to... Maryland? Bethesda, Maryland, I think, right? It's in the D.C. region where the Black Ops uh, scientific lab is located, the place where the the, the chemistry is done to create these, these magical medications. Right. Right? And basically, he's, he needs his drugs, right? That's why he decides to, to, to crash the, the library. The, sorry, to crash the laboratory. Right. And in fact, he doesn't even end up crashing the laboratory. He crashes the house of uh, Rachel Weiss, who plays a, um, a doctor who he knew from uh, the past because he would have to – I guess these super soldiers would have to go to the uh, Maryland-based lab to get all this blood work done to make sure that the experiment was working. So he knew um, that that was the place where – he thought that's where they kept the medication. It turns out they don't actually keep the medication there. It was more just like a you know, a lab facility for testing. And it turns out the actual medication is, unfortunately for them, in Manila. So then he sort of rescues Rachel Weiss, who's, who's sort of under attack by these government baddies who are trying to kind of mop up the operation. And they, they go over to Manila. That's the reason they go to Manila because they want to get – well, it actually turns out not to be the pills. They, it's even more complicated than that. There aren't really any more pills. They're going to try to permanently inject him with a virus. He doesn't need the pills anymore. Right? Yeah, I think that's the idea, right? The whole viraling out thing. Yeah. It's like the, the chemistry can, stuff. Can you up, tell that we had no idea what was happening for the middle section of this It's too movie? bad because, like, I don't think that the movie needed to be that complicated when it came to the chemistry. Like, why couldn't it just be that the pills were in Manila? Like, and not have to worry about the viraling off and, vi- you know, there, there are these, the, there's a level of complexity with regard to um, the kind of souped-up medication that just seemed unnecessary to me. The plot is already so convoluted because there's so many um, there's so many bad guys in suits. I don't know. I was not able at the end of the movie to tell you who any of the bad guys really were. What the really command were. structure is. Yeah, like who works for who. Like Ed Norton is a bad guy who seems to be in charge of the operation to destroy all evidence of the super soldier program. And then, in fact, they substitute poison for the for the chems for a lot of these people, right? Which which our hero only escapes because he happened to be stuck up on an Alaskan mountain when it was all happening. But you see all these super agents throughout the world just dropping dead. Right, because they, they're like, oh, take this pill now. And they just they just do, and then they die. But in addition to Ed Norton, there's also Stacey Keach, who a, plays a bad guy in a suit who works for some shadow government organization there's another guy in a suit who seems to be like 
the sort of scientific liaison to the Black Ops National Essay Group or whatever it's called. Like, there's all these bad guys. Albert Finney is another. Albert Finney who's that, is he in the in this movie or he's he was one of the leaders. Of, we see him in flashback, but we also do see him in present tense in this we movie. We do. Once, okay. I think. Yeah. So there's just like this panoply of um, of bad guys. We don't know who works for whom. We don't really know exactly what their motives are. They all seem to be kind of interested in wiping out all, all evidence of this. Of this well, program. that's another weakness of the movie, I think, because some of these bad guys are pretty good. I like yeah. Ed Norton's Ed character. Norton was great. But but the bad guys do nothing except sit around in a command center with you know TV screens around telling them what's happening in the rest of the movie, which we already know, right. and kind of commenting on it. And as you said at one point coming out last night, it was disappointing that the bad guys, none of them, are really ever in, in physical danger. Right. 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 Yeah. They're not. They're they're not ever threatened. They're always. Kind they're not of just, on the ground. Yeah. They're in. A, they're basically always in a room looking at screens and typing into. Um, uh, computers at one point, they they're not in, initially in what I believe is called a chaos room, but they they are like you know in some boardroom in some you know faceless office building in New York. And at one point, when like shit is hitting the fan, uh, Ed Norton like turns to one of his underlings and says, "I need a chaos room." And then they then they go to this well, they create this room that's like basically looks like a situation room with all these computers and and phones and everything. But I like the idea of the chaos room. Yeah, the you, next time the things next time, are getting serious. Yeah, when you like, head to the I need chaos a chaos room. <laughs> but then they're locked in the chaos room for the entire movie. It's like you know. Jeremy Renner and Rachel Weisz are like off, you know, running around Manila or Chicago or Bethesda or wherever. And meanwhile, all the bad guys are like sitting in this this chaos room that could be anywhere and with no windows. And you know, there's no there's very little interplay between the good guys and the bad guys. The bad guys who are chasing the good guys tend to be you know local Manila cops. And then kind of comically at the end, something we should discuss: they sick another um, kind of souped up soldier. To, to capture um, Jeremy Renner. Oh, the Larks three. The Larks. Yeah, tell, t- tell, <laughs> tell me about the Larks three. So one of the one of the like unintentionally funny moments of the movie is they re- they finally corner um, Aaron Cross and Rachel Weisz's character. They know they're in Manila. They know they're in a particular factory in Manila and they they don't want to rely on the local cops to bring them in I think both because they recognize the local cops aren't up to the task and they probably are trying to keep this hush hush. So they're trying to figure out what to do and one of the bad guys says. Well, we could, you know, he brings up the he brings up the the notion that they could use a, the larks, and everyone's, you know, in the theater is like, what is a larks? And then they give this, then they explain that the larks, L A R X, L A R X, yeah, dash three, larks three is a super soldier of a different stripe than Renner and Bourne that seems to have. Um, been programmed so that they have all the strengths of uh, the Renner character, but they have no what no um, remorse, no emotions, no like empathy, just, no right. empathy. Right? They just like they're just like pure killers. They're like born without any kind of conscience. Um, but what you pointed out when we were talking about the Larks plot development, for one thing, it happens very very late in the movie. Right? We right. hear nothing about the whole Larks three thing until probably more than three quarters of the way through the movie, oh, right? Yeah. And so then this just faceless villain is dispatched. But but also, as you pointed out, if they're so upset about cleaning up their black ops operation that they're actually killing every single agent in the world, so why is there this whole other factory in Singapore just merrily churning out larks? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're like, for some reason, they're not worried about the larks uh, getting out there. So there's like, yeah, so they just sick this larks guy on there. We don't know anything about him. He's like this stone-faced, you know, six-foot-tall Asian guy who is like very robotic. It's like, a, in, you know, he starts chasing after the good guys and you don't there's no you know interplay between the good guys and the bad guys you don't you know it's so it, that's, that contributes to the sense in which the, the final chase which takes up the last I don't know 30 minutes of the movie is just kind of gets boring because you get the larks who you don't care about 
you know, on, on the hunt and, and you know the good guys are probably going to escape. And meanwhile, you have to sit through 30 minutes of weaving in traffic in Manila. Right, which don't really – none of those those scenes really take advantage of the Jeremy Renner character or even the Lark character's superb physical abilities. It's not like you Or ingenuity. Them. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we were both disappointed uh, throughout the movie that one of the pleasures of the Bourne movies is – um, watching this, you know, s- super smart agent kind of figure his way out of incredibly difficult predicaments. Often it's through physical brute strength, but often it's he just does something really clever um, that your average CIA agent, without you know, with with regular mitochondria, wouldn't have thought of. And Renner, on a couple of occasions, his character in this movie sort of thinks his way through a problem in an interesting way. But a lot of times he just sort of punches and breaks necks and and uh, runs faster and jumps higher. We both really like the moment when he's on the plane to Manila and he uses the airplane safety card. He removes the the laminated sheet and uses it to help fake one of Rachel Weisz's IDs that he's putting together. That was was such a great detail. It's it's the kind of thing that these movies, I think, you know, relish a little bit more than a lot of other action movies, like the the how, like, you know, a a different kind of movie would just, like, assume that this guy was able to either manufacture without showing you a fake ID or just have it somehow, you know, stashed in a pouch. But we actually get to see him making this fake laminated card. And, like, that craftsmanship is really cool and fun. But that was, there weren't enough moments like that yeah that's a good place that's a good place to break so the spoiler podcast is delighted to be sponsored this week by audible.com the leading provider of digital spoken audio content on the web they have more than a hundred thousand audiobook titles which you can play on any device including whatever you're listening to us on right now and audible has a special offer for spoiler listeners you can get a 30-day free trial and one free book by signing up here audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler so we were looking through to find something, some recommendations related to our topic this week. And entering Ludlam into Audible is a great sport that I highly recommend because you come up with this incredible, rich panoply of, of titles. Um, so I want you to, to read some of these with me, John. They're so great. Of course, we have the Bourne series. So the, right. the Bourne Identity, the Bourne Supremacy, the Bourne Ultimatum, the three Matt Damon movies. Then we go on to the Bourne Betrayal, the Bourne Dominion the Born Sanction, but then we start to really diversify. And these aren't all Ludlum books, by the way. Some of these are the Ludlum brand. They're continued by other authors. The Jansen Command, the Altman Code, the Arctic Event, the Area Decision. <laughs> Wait, are these all books that are that star Jason Bourne? I think they are, right? They, they look like they're part of the Bourne series. I love you know, it. they're definitely Ludlum or Ludlum influenced, but I don't know, because I haven't read these books, I don't know what kind of universe it, it branches out into. But right. you want to read a few? They just get better and yeah. better. Yeah. Uh, let's see. The the Moscow Vector. I like that one. There's a certain – I wonder how you would describe exactly the, the – um, the type of title it is like <laughs> the Parsifal Mosaic, the Icarus Agenda. This is these are so they're so genius. The they, Lazarus Vendetta, the Paris Option. Yeah, it's, it's true. What is the code? What is the generative code for these? It's like a place name, but not necessarily. It's a proper name followed by a sort of generic abstract noun. Right. <laughs> well, you can have some fun creating your own uh, Robert Ludlum titles in your mind. But <clears throat> I think this is a great recommendation for this time of year because I feel like in August a lot of people are packing up the uh, station wagon going for a you know long road trip to uh, summer vacation and you know Ludlum books are – uh, perfect kind of listening material for you know a car full of your whole family, and you know you're just looking for something to uh, entertain you for six hours. So you know why not why not pop in uh, the Jansen Directive, <laughs> or <laughs> for that matter, the Aquitaine Progression. <laughs> Is that a real one? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So yeah, you can generate your own and go to Audible and check out what they've got. So give it a try today. And again, the URL is audiblepodcast.com/slash/spoiler. 
All right, so back to the Bourne legacy. I did want to make note of one scene that I think works really well, so well that it could almost be just watched out of context of the movie as a, a terrifying individual scene, and it's this shootout in the lab, the lab where Rachel Weisz works, where, for reasons that we never do fully understand, but it's implied that he's been somehow taken over by the program, right. one of her colleagues, who before, last time we saw him, was this kind of milk toasty scientist who's asking her for funding for one of his projects and seems like this sweet guy, suddenly goes completely dead-eyed and goes on a shooting rampage in the lab and people are hiding under desks and he's just basically picking off all of his colleagues one by one and Rachel Weisz is the only one to survive the shootout. And maybe it's because of all the shootouts in the news recently, but that scene really, really hit me hard. I thought it was beautifully done. Yeah, it was really chilling. He, um, the sort of, the, the methodical nature of it, there's, it's, it's, the movie like takes its time in that scene in a way it doesn't, uh, in other scenes. Like he, he runs out of bullets and he sort of like slowly reloads the gun while everyone's like cowering under desks, like just basically and there's no sound, off. right? I mean, except for sort of lab sounds. I don't think there's like a propulsive soundtrack in that no, scene at all. It's really, it's really terrifying. And it made me think, you know, if there if there'd been more scenes like that where they kind of changed up the tempo and the pace and, and sort of scared you in a different way, it would have been to the movie's benefit, I think. Yeah, because that was the, I feel like that was head and shoulders above any other action sequence in the movie because the rest of them were kind of the classic, although it's directed by Gilroy and not Paul Greengrass that, this time. It's that classic handheld, choppy, and sometimes handheld in scenes where there doesn't need to be a handheld camera, which right. always gets on my nerves. Like, we're just watching two people talk in an office right now. We don't need to be <laughs> looking through some kind of shaky, embedded journalist war cam. There were also, like, at least two uh, completely unnecessary 360 pan shots. There were. There completely were. Yeah, I'm just yeah. like, why? Why? <laughs> yeah, two people talking about chemistry while a 360-degree camera circles. Yeah, them. it just seemed like they were trotting that out because they can. Um, so that that was too bad. But yeah, I agree. That that shot, that scene in the lab was was really great. And uh, I think you're right that, you know, it's it's that much more disturbing given kind of recent recent news. What about Renner as an action hero? Do you think he's got it in him? Do you think that people are going to cotton to this? I think so. I, I mean, I don't think whatever the movie's uh, problems are, I don't think they were they were Renner's. I, I thought he was great. I particularly liked him in the beginning when he's in Alaska. It's a little bit vague why he why we join him in Alaska because I, I, I kind of gathered that he got exiled there because he was slightly disobedient and he's got a great um, scene in a cabin with another um, souped up agent. Uh, where he's trying to kind of get some information about why he's there and what the program, what the nature of the program is, and he can switch between being kind of like stone-faced and serious action guy and being kind of charming and funny. Although the movie doesn't take advantage of that as much as it might. Um, and and he, he's way more empathic than Jason Bourne, right? I mean, part of the yeah. whole thing of Jason Bourne is that he's this guy who's sort of trying to get through to some softer, more authentic part of himself, right? But right. he's basically this kind of stone-faced killer. Yeah. And uh, and and that's not true of Renner's character at all. In fact, every time he's around another agent which is rare because there's so few in the world, right? In fact, I think the guy in the mountain he says is the first one he's ever seen. Right. Every time he's 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 in that situation, he's sort of touchy-feely, right? I mean, of the two characters, he's the one who's saying like, hey, let's let's tear down the walls here. Let's talk about what it's like to be a, a chemically modified super agent. <laughs> yeah, and there's even a great scene where, and this is another, this was another moment of ingenuity that I did like where, um, <laughs> where Aaron Cross basically needs to um, kill a wolf in order to avoid a predator drone attack. <laughs> if you see the movie, you'll see why. Um, but he, uh, bef- I don't know if you caught this, but like right before he essentially like plants this uh, homing device in the wolf's mouth, he sort of apologizes to the wolf. He's like, you really shouldn't have followed me. You know, he's like, he feels bad about that. He's like using the wolf as a decoy to like not get blown up. I like I liked that he like took the moment to sort of say to the wolf, like, look, this is kind of your own fault for following me. You know, like, I, I, mean, I hate to do this to you. Well, that, I need goes, to- <laughs> that goes with his empathic character because yeah. he doesn't want to be one of the guys in suits, right? Who's right, exactly. Controlling the wolf. But he won't even kill, a, you know, he won't even kill a wolf without being 
a little bit uh, remorseful about it. Although that said, later he does kill. He does seem to kill several Manila police officers who are kind of just in the line of duty. But, but that's part of the general sense that once this movie goes to Manila, things go south, yeah. literally, right? Yeah, he, I mean, it, the movie becomes more mean-spirited. Yeah, at one point he, for no real reason, I don't think, twists the neck and kills this, this uh, Filipino security guard who's just doing his job trying to figure out why someone's bursting into the lab. Yeah, he's not some, like, dark, you know, um, government agent who, who, you know, presumably he could have just, like, cracked his knee and kept going. But he, he sort of he produces lethal force, what looks like lethal force. Yeah, the body count really rises after he gets to Manila for reasons that, that don't seem justified enough to Yeah. Me. Oh, one thing we should maybe discuss before we wrap up also is the ending, which is which is kind of str- strange. I think we both thought it was odd and surprising and We both had a, is that the ending kind of moment? Yeah, like, the, so unsurprisingly, you know, to people who've seen these movies, um, Aaron Cross and, and Rachel Weisz's character, you know, managed to escape the Larks 3 and, and the other, uh, pers- their other pursuers, and they make it onto a boat um, that's, you know, off the coast of the Philippines. Or Basically, a Filipino fisherman takes them in. Yeah, right? and the last we see of them, they're, like, on the boat, and they're just kind of, you know, they seem to be maybe planning their kind of next move. You, you, for a second, you think, okay, like, they're going to, this is the setup for the final rush where they go back to America and take down the bad guys in the, in suits, and instead... They're actually unrolling a map, They're right? unrolling a map, and then... Um, Rachel Weisz's character says, oh, are we lost? And Renner's like, no, we're not lost. And she's like, oh, I kind of wish we were lost. And he smiles, and she smiles. And they and, hold hands. And they hold hands, and that's it. That's and then the camera the pulls out, and there was that moment where you and I were both saying that this camera move feels like a last shot kind of thing, but yeah. it can't possibly be. But it was. That was the ending. Right, and there, there hasn't, one thing we haven't mentioned, but there's not really a romantic tension between uh, the two, those two characters, which is fine. Like, I like that. I mean, it would have been kind of goofy if they, like, were supposed, you know, all of a sudden falling in love at the end of the, at the end of the movie. I mean, there is a little bit of... What? S- They're supposed, totally supposed to be falling in love. Well, in that last scene, but it's not, a, it's not something that, like, is very much present in the plot up until that very last moment, right? I mean, there's no, like, lovey-doveyness until... It seems to me like when she agrees to stay with him, right? There's a moment after he's been, what are we going to call it? Viraled down? He's been viraled down or up by by her, and and, and sort of the, the mental effects have been permanently locked in, but apparently that causes, like, severe flu symptoms. <laughs> so he spends one night, yeah, basically sweating in a Manila hotel room, and he tells her at this point, I have $40,000 sewn into the lining of my jacket, and I've got a gun in this bag, and take everything and just go. And she refuses to go, and she, like, you know, whatever, holds his, cradles his trembling, sweaty body in her arms. I feel like that was as close as the movie was going to come to But Dana, if you, were, if you were Rachel Weisz's character, and you've just, and you've like just been hunted down for like the last three weeks by like government agents with machine guns, and you are, there's a, you're in a room with a guy <laughs> who's a super soldier, and has just like, he's gotten you out of every fix that you've been put in. I hear what you're and saying. And he's like, just go run along, you'll be fine. <laughs> she t- every time she takes two steps away from him, she's like almost getting killed. No, like, you're right. She's got <laughs> motives beyond altruism to yeah, stay with Jeremy. Yeah, I don't I didn't sure. I, I think you're right that like, you know, we were supposed to see that moment as her kind of falling for him, but also it was a logical thing to like say like she had better luck to, of surviving by sticking with him in his in his flu-like state than she did grabbing the $40,000 and running into the streets of Manila and hoping for the best. Yeah, so no yeah, the so the ending feels almost like again, it's like almost like a James Bond ending, right? Like he's with a pretty girl on a boat and everything's fine for the moment. And yeah. we just we just kind of leave it at that. And I mean, that would be that would all feel very sort of mischievous and, and larkish, not, not larksish. <laughs> <laughs> it's an important distinction in this movie. <laughs> but but for the fact that we ha- they haven't really resolved the the scenario, the fact that you know all the bad guys in suits in the chaos room are still looking for them. Right. And by the way, I was just uh, leaving through my notes uh, before, and I realized that I've been saying chaos room. In fact, it was crisis suite, which is even better. I think <laughs> I need a crisis suite. So. 
people <laughs> don't correct me. I, was, I think I got this right now. Crisis suite. I need a crisis suite. I'm completely yelling that in the next week. <laughs> if anything goes even slightly wrong, <laughs> booking a crisis suite. Definitely. All right, John, thanks a lot for coming in to talk about The Born Legacy. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Come back again soon. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.